This episode was recorded on Wajak Noongar Budja, and we like to pay respect to elders past, present, and emerging. This land has always been, and will always be, Aboriginal land. Kaya, Wanju, hello and welcome to the Youth Pride Network podcast, Queer And. My name's Hannah, my pronouns are they, them, and on this podcast, we sit down with LGBTIQA plus people from our community and talk about their experience of being queer. On today's episode, we sat down with five fierce advocates from the queer and disabled community to hear the highlights and lowlights of their experience, disabled culture and community and how it relates to queerness, common myths and misconceptions, and their advice for younger generations. Hi, I'm Jack. Uh, I use he, he or it pronouns, and I'm an Aquarius. Hi, I'm Annika, or Annika, depending on your pronunciation. Um, my pronouns are they, them, and I'm a Cancer. Hi, I'm Georgia. My pronouns are they, them, and I'm a Taurus. Hi, um, my name is Crystal. My pronouns are she, her, and I'm a Libra son, I think. <laughs> Hello, my name is Grace, and my pronouns are she, her. I am a Sagittarius and also Scorpio rising. I identify solely as queer. I feel like it's such a beautiful umbrella term that really fits my experience of just not straight. But I do know in some situations I will try and um, articulate it a bit more of going, oh, I'm pansexual biromantic or pansexual homoromantic. So (laughs) that's why I really love the term queer. Yeah, similar vibe. Just I'm, I'm an asexual person, but romantically mainly homo-romantic, mm. question mark. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, definitely queer is a good term for me. Yeah, I can relate, having kind of been questioning things lately, but yeah, going with queer non-binary at the moment. So I am bisexual, also polyamorous. Um, Crystal here. Um, I've always had a complex relationship with labels. Sometimes I think that it frees me but sometimes I uh, I had a phase where I was like it doesn't define me um, but I think right now I'm comfortable with saying that I'm queer yeah yeah queer is such a good word I like the ambiguity of it and yeah like I guess so and it's just I think it's um to me it feels like like home like something that isn't uh I guess the norm mm, mm. yeah so everybody here uh, would you mind sharing what you're comfortable with about how you experience disability? Sure. So I am blind. I've been totally blind since birth. Um, never been able to see anything at all. <laughs> um, I have uh, a condition that requires me to use a powered wheelchair full time. I have brittle bones disease, which means that No, my bones are not made of glass, but they're very um, prone to fractures. Um, And I'm also uh, neurodivergent. I'm pursuing an ADHD diagnosis as well. Yes, very on (laughs) for queerness, being neurodivergent. (laughs) I just love the the crossovers there. Yeah, right. Um, It's a pipeline, like queer to neurodivergent or the other way around, pipeline. (laughs) (laughs) When when Grace and I saw you in that play... um, and your character had the brittle bones. Was that something that you added to the play or was that something that was already in the play? Um, yes. And, oh, yes. So um, the original play had um, someone with, uh, the, the lead had hemiplegia, I think, as a condition. Um, but then I think there was a director's note in the script that says we want to portray the um, 
disability authentically and there is freedom to <coughs> change it to the lead um, uh, actor's um, genuine disability and we got confirmation and um, approval from uh, the makers as well. That's so yeah. cool. That is amazing. We, we, I had to try it to make sure that we did it the right way and not just like, hey, I want this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, we, we changed a little bit of stuff around, like for example, uh, in, you know, the parts where um, my character would talk about the pain and the everyday thing that they would go through and then I would just kind of use my lived experience and I didn't feel comfortable talking about having hemiplegia mm. and the um, symptoms of every day. But yeah, context, um, I did a little play for Curtin University called um, Teenage Dick and it was a uh, American high school modernization of uh, Richard III, who is uh, a, I think, canonically uh, disabled uh, figure in the Shakespearean landscape i believe yes um and it was really fun and that's how i first met hannah and well grace about the fourth time but, yeah yeah but no, she follows me <laughs> everywhere so <laughs> it was a great play it was a really oh really thank you show. it was so fun it was such a fun crowd with you folks and um we got um audio description and stuff as well <laughs> yeah that's so cool that they like yeah that the play um allowed that like it's just I think it's great to be adaptable in that moment yeah. to because yeah you're never going to get the same disabled person in the same yeah. like play yeah and it's time. already and so, yeah. so few and far between mm. the representation and so yeah it was I thought a really lovely touch mm. really mm. sensitive way of doing it yeah that's great there's been a lot of representation of disabled people really happening in the last year or two um, I was in Yolanta which was also done very, very well and really centred on the experience of the female blind character who knew nothing about blindness, <laughs> nothing mm. about the real world trapped in a garden, mm. uh, no, nothing about love or, you know, any of that um, and finds out all about, you know, yes, that she's blind, yes, that there's a you know, world out there and, and love and all the things that come with it. So that was really cool too. So cool. You're both such talented performers. It's so great to see you, like, thriving and bringing your, like, authentic selves to each role as well and that people – and, you know, there's there's so many productions happening in Perth that are, you know, open to, like, conversations and not being sensitive and not being defensive and just, you know, listening and, and collaborating and, you know, because everyone – regardless of where they're from, has something to contribute. So that's really yeah, great. Absolutely. Yeah. I yeah. think that we're quite um, fortunate to be in a really lovely arts community in, in Bulu where that conversation's happening and I dare I say quite forward thinking. Um, I, I was born with my disability. I was born with something called proximal femoral focal deficiency, um, meaning I've got one leg shorter than the other. So I use a mixture of my crutch, my prosthetic and my wheelchair. And recently I've tried a walker, which was amazing because different, different form of mobility with that one. Every single mobility device gives you something new and a new experience. So definitely not something to be afraid of. But my experience with my disability has been a long one because it's been my entire life. It's something I'm extremely proud of. I personally identify as a cripple. I prefer that term because... 
I it feels like it fits my experience of disability the best, especially as someone with a physical disability and especially with a physical disability that isn't easy to understand. You know, I'm not always a wheelchair user. I'm not a paraplegic. I'm not someone with cerebral palsy. I'm not someone with spina bifida. I'm not an amputee, even though most people assume that I'm a technically deformed and that's why I feel like there's a lot of power in me holding the word cripple and using that so there is also the whole other side episode of um, being diagnosed with bipolar when I was 17 and having to shift how I thought about my disability in terms of my mental illness because I had to take the same care and consideration that I took towards my physical disability towards my mental illness and that was quite a learning opportunity and a growing opportunity, but a very difficult one. Um, I was born with a hearing loss uh, and there's kind of a, because I'm not profoundly deaf, I wasn't really, I wasn't even diagnosed until I was seven. So I didn't really engage with my disability a lot until like early teens kind of time. And from there, it's definitely been like this, kind of journey of figuring out where exactly I fit in terms of deafness and the deaf community Mm. because we have our own language, we have our own culture, our history and I was lucky enough that I was able to go and study that and that really helped me find my place but there's a lot of people I know who they are the only deaf person they've ever met and they kind of go through these processes of finding the community in different ways. So I am very lucky in that I got to do that as as soon as I became an adult and I was able to make my own decisions, I kind of engaged with that. Um, And yeah, also mental health wise definitely has impacted my life in ways that kind of both parallel and diverge from my disability um it's a very complex relationship between mental health and disability oh a hundred percent I always find like disability and social anxiety and exclusion go hand in hand which lead to a whole other host of issues you know if you're the only person in the room that's you know for a fact that communicates differently that walks differently looks differently acts differently behaves differently there's going to be some form of exclusion and then that I felt like, at least for me, it slowed my progress at school of making friends and feeling like I was a part of people. And There's such an eagerness to kind of banish disability where mm. possible. Um, but the sort of behaviour around that often elicits most of that sort of negative mental health response that you get, like the isolation from just... You know, if disability is a dirty word Mm -hmm. and, like, that's something you end up using to describe yourself, the processes that you have to undergo to uproot all of that, like... So much, like, disregarding shame that you feel like is forced onto you and it's something I get, like, really annoyed when people... I tell them, oh, I'm disabled or I'm this or that and they go, no, you're not disabled. No, don't use those dirty words towards yourself. Don't identify with that. Like they want to make sure that you don't identify as disabled because they see it as a bad thing. And it sort of takes me back every time because I'm like, oh, this is something that I've spent years learning to be proud of, learning to celebrate, learning, you know, my culture, my history, my community that I'm so just honoured to be a part of. And then you see that as something 
I shouldn't label, I shouldn't identify with disgusting, don't, a bad thing, like a weakness almost. It hurts. Mm. And I guess like the opposite where when somebody with a disability, myself included, like does have like a time where they talk negatively about themselves or their disability. With disability, I find like sometimes it's almost encouraged. Mm. You have that negative self-talk, you have a bad day and somebody's there like egging that feeling on. Yeah. No, I've, that's such an interesting concept because that exists and I've never thought about it. It does. It really kind of hammers itself into your mm. brain. Which just leads to you having to constantly self-advocate and stay strong, which is tiring and quite exhausting, frankly. Especially when you want to feel like you can be safe in your own community and when your own community is hurting and mm-hmm. uh, victims of that kind of constant negative mindset it's like where can I turn to get that reassurance that must be really tough Mm, yeah thank you for recognizing that it is the way I sort of see it is that I was born with a susceptibility and then my experiences as a child and the situations and the trauma that I experienced have led to me having a brain that experiences emotions and thoughts and feelings differently and so I experienced the world in a different way and I've always felt very disconnected and far away from other people, um, similar, I guess, to being neurodivergent, but um, in the sense of being mentally ill. And I never really saw that as a disability or being disabled. So until only a few years ago, I sort of realised and came across disability encompassing mental illness and it's been quite a long sort of journey of having to tackle my um, inner ableism and feeling like I can take up space in this community because I, um, I guess for me it's dynamic in terms of, you know, it's not similar to what Annika was saying around, you know, one day they might use a wheelchair, one day they might not. I have, you know, I relate differently to the world on different days and I might one day live differently, um, but for the foreseeable future... This is my reality and I guess aside that also living with chronic physical illnesses as well. Um, So kind of a couple of different experiences and even then with them being dynamic and kind of different days looking different, I often find it hard to feel valid in that identity as, um, you know, I often get the you don't look disabled and the sort of like, oh, well, you were doing this at this time but you're not now. So like which is it? Because people don't understand that, you know, people um, can experience, you know, different symptoms and different feelings at different times and that doesn't negate, you know, what it was the previous day. Um, But, yeah, so it's kind of been hard Mm. in terms of when things have been better for me to feel like I almost feel like I'm losing part of my identity sometimes because people sort of know me as someone, I guess, that lives with chronic pain and I sort of see myself as that and so it has been hard to sort of see living with a bit less pain because of all the things I've done as a positive thing because I sort of feel like I relate so much to that person and because then people see that part of me but when I'm managing it more and doing more things you don't necessarily always see it so it's kind of more of a conscious choice of do I say this and do I sort of like make it known um kind of if you didn't know me you probably would just think I was yeah you probably wouldn't be able to see what was happening underneath um, and finding the disabled community and thinking about that way of kind of looking at the lens of my life 
has been really helpful because I was always told that I was, yeah, different and too sensitive and too much and that what was happening for me wasn't happening for me, but it was. It's just that the same things weren't necessarily happening for other people and that is, um, yeah, has helped me to see it in a different way and understand that there's not something wrong with me. There's just the way that I experience the world because of a combination of circumstances and that that also brings with it things that make me unique. Mm. Well said. Well said. And it must be so frustrating to have to, like, be apologetic for being well or, like, having a day where you're feeling good and it's almost like you feel like you're disproving yourself just by being having a good day or having a day where you're not experiencing pain um, and it's almost, almost adding a different kind of pain in its place, which is really, it's really yuck. I'm really sorry that can be your experience so often because of our heckin' ableist society, which just has to have proof all the time. It's just as in like proof with gross inverted commas of like put it to me on a silver platter and, and quantify it for me. It's, you know, it's so, I feel like it's very um, relevant to our queer experience. Mm. So, you know, gender is so hard and intangible to explain and, and people really want to understand it and it's like sometimes you're just not going to understand it because you don't experience it. Mm. Um, yeah, which is ridiculous. You know what I think the most challenging part of being queer and disabled uh, is is that people don't think disabled people can be queer or mm-hmm. or can even think about um, love relationships and sex at all. We are supposed to be puritanical beings with <laughs> no urge for love, no urge <laughs> for sex. We are just going to live this life where we weave baskets and make dolls and do little dances and, and not not love <laughs> yeah we'll just live in a house full of of um other puritanical girls who you know are also not interested in any of that either and just go on our lives like that but that's not how it works <laughs> um, we want relationships maybe relationships you know with the same sex or different sex um but we have preferences um we want relationships and we're interested in going out and getting them uh and that's really hard for a lot of people to wrap their minds around mm. grace is a big flirt um, <laughs> as well so i just <laughs> i just saw you don't weave baskets oh my god i didn't know this <laughs> i'm so sorry i latch hook instead <laughs> oh hilarious um yeah i definitely agree i think um the preconceived notions that we can only be one thing or that we're monoliths is definitely a challenge that I struggle with myself as well trying to be like oh I shouldn't be too different surely mm-hmm. can't wear glasses and wear and use a wheelchair thanks mom <laughs> um <laughs> or yeah but I think one of my I, th- I thought about this for a bit the other day as well of like what is a um a structural challenge in this like in, in I guess a systemic ways I think it's really hard for us as um, the disabled community to access community support and like we're kind of an intersection within an intersection and um, yeah it's miss it's underrepresented it's often ignored and I think lots of queer spaces are like we all know cis white and um, yeah quite uh, I think hostile 
or anyone that has any access needs that's just a little bit different. Mm. Um, so, yeah, people with chronic illnesses or disabled folks just feel like they are more ostracized and I, I definitely felt that in a lot of a lot of spaces and at university as well or when I'm uh, performing or yes just in groups I just feel like oh I'm not uh, queer enough to be here because my thing is disabled it's more mm. uh, visible it's more easy to guess like oh yeah put her in that box mm. um, so you can't really say that you're anything else because that's too much mm. yeah I think it's it's um, it's easy to be grouped into one thing to be um, palatable um, yeah, totally. And yeah, so definitely um, I echo that you can't exist as multitudes and you it's hard to access community and support and feeling like you belong when you're just, yeah, intersections within intersections. Mm, mm. Yeah. It's hard yeah. to be perceived as more than just one thing. Sorry, Grace, were you going to say something? No, just agreeing. Yeah, yeah. It's And people would, yeah, putting you in that box and, and it's like you, it must create a barrier if you want to open up to other things. You like you feel like people are only ever going to see you as that one thing. I'm yeah, and hard. just or simple things like uh, well, do you do you a mixer or a queer mixer or a gathering meeting at uni or at work? What you can't even do it if you wanted to because yeah. they don't make the right accommodation for you. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, oh, we'll see you. You know, rainbow, all fun, corporations. But oh, we can't put a ramp in. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> too, too hard. Too hard. Too basket. hard. Can't have a tactile tour. Sorry. No. Yeah. <laughs> too hard to get that audio described. We have to get funding for that. Mm. You know. What are the f- best parts of being queer and disabled? Um, the best bits of each and the bits that intersect. Anybody have any favourites? Um, I'm going to be honest. I've never really been asked this question about what's my favourite part of being queer and disabled. Um, I've always highlighted some of the challenges that come along with being queer and disabled, but I think this is a really excellent opportunity to celebrate some of that beautiful intersection, but it's also really, really challenging. I feel like I'm rambling to try and think of something. Um, I think in terms of at least being disabled, it gives me something, it gives me a community that I'm proud of. It gives me a culture that I am so honoured, well, I've said that before, but honoured to be a part of. Um, it connects me to people that have so many beautiful and unique experiences and I've learnt so much of these people. I think being disabled has led me to be a better problem solver, be more creative at finding solutions, being able to adapt to the world, being nifty, being a little bit of a MacGyver because I was born into a world that doesn't, doesn't adapt to me at all. So I've had to adapt to it and find out my own solutions. And then in terms of being queer, that's, I feel like at least there are some things that I celebrate, but that's a massive list. I think being disabled let me be queer in an easier way. And what I mean by that is I was always ostracised for being a different person, for looking different. So when I originally came out as a lesbian, it wasn't like, oh, I was like, oh, what? What are they going to do? Stare and point at me more? It wasn't that big of a deal. And I that gave me so much freedom with my queerness because... I wasn't scared of being different. I wasn't scared of not fitting in because I didn't fit in. So I got to experience my queerness since I was about 11, very loudly, very annoyingly, very, you know, baby gay, up in your face. And I am so thankful to my disability for that experience because I don't think I would have been able to come out in the, well, my coming out process was long and some of it extremely painful and 
some really horrible homophobic experiences in my school and with my peer group, but also I wouldn't have had those experiences if I wasn't as loud as proud. Not saying they're negative. They are negative, but they learnt, I learned from them. So I love what being disabled has given my queerness. Mm. What a quote. Oh, yeah. I love oh. those quotes. <laughs> That's such a good one because, like, yeah, both of these things are, like, I guess, like, foundational to, like, me as a person that exists. Mm -hmm. And, like, both of them have, like, changed in nature because of each other. Like, there's no way yeah. I would be, like, deaf in the way that I am without being a queer person as well. Mm. Um, and similarly, I wouldn't be, like, queer the way I am if I wasn't a deaf person. I think as well, like, the kind of, like, this intersection is my livelihood and, yeah. like, it's the art that I've done and it's, like, the community that I get to work in. So it's, like, it is both a part it's of me. everything. And, yeah, like, it's a part of me and also it sustains me. Yeah. Um, it's everyone I know, it's everyone I, well, it's not everyone I know, but it's the mass majority of people I know are queer people with neurodivergences or disabilities or mental illnesses. I would have a really hard time finding you a list of my straight neurotypical friends. <laughs> <laughs> They're getting rarer and rarer. Yeah. <laughs> They're a dying breed. They are the minority now, I swear. Yeah. Um, I think the connection to community is a really big part for me and just that unapologetic acceptance and understanding and validation. Like, there's no questions asked. We're not going to gatekeep you. We just want to accept you and, like, you, are, you have a space here, you have a place here and you can take up that space and I think for me first that happened in a queer space and that was just so like healing and so um yeah just it really touched me like I remember marching in my first pride parade and I kept expecting people on the sidelines to be like booing and be negative and everyone was just really accepting and like loud and proud and loving and I felt so touched by that and I was like yeah it's okay to be like this and I don't have to feel ashamed because I had to unpack a lot of internalised homophobia and shame and now being able to feel like I can exist in a safe space with people who understand what it's like and then having that sort of similar experience translate to the disabled community in terms of, you know, I was already dealing with that internalised sort of shame and feeling like I couldn't take up space but having people just be, you know, just they're just there, they're willing to talk, they're going to listen, they understand and they're not going to be like, oh, well, you need to prove to us, you know, that you're disabled, um, you need to prove that you are able to exist here. Like people just were unapologetically understanding and accepting. And I think that really helped me to then work on that myself, knowing that I had those experiences from other people helped me to, yeah, unpack up myself and start to feel that way. And then knowing that there's people in each community that understand the intersection and knowing that I can bring the perspective from each community to the other. You know, we notice in queer spaces when things aren't accessible and being able to bring that disability lens and expertise into that and then vice versa. And I guess also, like, the work I do is in mental health and improving systems and the care for young people. And I think without my experiences and understanding, particularly the intersection of being queer and what that means in terms of how I experience the world and, you know, the oppression and discrimination has brought unique perspectives and understanding how 
things should be different for young people to come on how we can be inclusive and safe and supportive. And so I think it brings, you know, a lot of unique perspective and insights into shaping what mental health and disability service reform looks like. I love hearing how you talk about the way the disabled community is so unapologetic and mm. is so accepting and that it's it's so synonymous with queerness and like the queer community and how it's like even more so. Um, they both yeah. have such incredible histories as mm. well. Mm. I was really lucky I got to study sign language under a couple of like deaf, queer, older women who oh, had wow. like, yeah, like, they were incredible resources for like community and then also like being like, yeah, actually there's a huge contingent of like deaf and queer mm-hmm. people in Perth. There's even, there's its own contingent of dykes on bikes that's deaf dykes on bikes. Oh that's my God, so I cool. love it. They're normally in the parade. They're oh. incredible. Um, yeah, just so many excellent like people who have just been like part of our history and like different ways. We need to get them to tow the chairs next Pride. <laughs> That'd be good. <laughs> that would be so cool. Um, I think the ability to, I guess uh, I have a lot of empathy for uh, diversity because it is the norm and that's what I strive for and I try to surround myself with everyone of all differences and I think that's a given because we're already so different as well. So I think just being so accepting and um, what's the other thing? I think when you have joy, it's it's unabashed joy. It's so great because it's communities coming together and it's, yeah, it's celebratory when um, you're seen and when you can be special and unique in your own way because um, there's none of us that are the same thing and um, like I'm not grace and grace is not me um uh, yeah or grace is not every blind person in wa or in australia and vice versa <laughs> no you don't speak for all of them um, no 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 mm, yeah i think that's um what else do you have anything i to do add? i do um the great thing about um being disabled and queer um, also, yes, the absolute joy when you get it right and you find your people. But we're so lucky. We have this automatic filter of getting rid of the not-so-nice people. Yes. The not-so-nice <laughs> people will put us in the too-hard basket. And um. we can find the people that are lots of fun yep. and amazing, like Hannah. Um, <laughs> you yeah. Know. yeah, say that so <laughs> they don't kick you out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. We, that so, is so good. Yeah, yeah. We we get rid of all the the nasties, mm. um, and we we're left with only the really great, joyful, um, cool people that genuinely want us around and want connection. Mm. Mm. I was so sure you were going to just say boobs. But boobs are great <laughs> too. But I don't know that you have to be disabled. Yeah, the, like the tactile tours where you get to see some boobs. <laughs> There's also um, just an awesome. Um, community that I'm part of up at Crystal and Stone, which is a spiritual, queer, very inclusive um, community. And they have drag bingo and they have braille bingo cards. And the um, drag queen comes around and will uh, absolutely show you all of the things that she is wearing and make sure that you have a a good feel of the the goodies. (laughs) Wow, that's amazing. Braille bingo cards. It's good. I want to ask about the the culture you talked about before. You talked about like loving 
you know, inheriting this culture of mm. being a disabled person? I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. I, I think the culture of disability is a really difficult thing to describe to those, um, especially I, I, feel, I feel horrible when I talk about this because I know that the mass majority of the disabled community weren't raised in the disabled community. The mass majority were isolated from the rest of the community or didn't even know they were disabled until later on because so many people have this idea that disability is someone in a chair or uses a mobility aid. In Australia, only 4% of wheelchair, full-time wheelchair users are... Sorry, only 4% of the disabled population in Australia are full-time wheelchair users. So when we compare that to what we think disability is, it, it doesn't look like someone in a chair. And I think that's where a lot of people get excluded from it. And it makes me sad because what I grew up with being my disability culture is being born with it, getting to go to disability camps. We were talking earlier about how there's a bunch of camps on at the moment. There's deaf camp. There's, what was the other one? Um, There's amp camp going on at the moment. There was blind camp. Um, All of these, like, events that go on centred around being disabled in Australia, which is quite a lucky position to be in. You get to meet all of these other kids and go and spend these weekends and especially sport in Australia and disabled sport is a massive place where you're surrounded by disabled people and it breeds this... um, this culture of how we treat each other is completely unsympathetically and sort of cruel and it develops its own humour because we get so much sympathy from the outside world. We get charity from everyone that as soon as you come into a space with all disabled kids, you've never seen something so chaotic. People are stealing people's feet. People are swapping around arms. People are taking <laughs> off wheels of chairs and hiding them and just seeing how far you get. Um, this This culture of just like, I also figured out like later on that my humour that I absorbed from the disability community is really cruel, it's really dark because some of us are facing more pain as young children than some people will ever see in in their entirety of our lives. I know kids that would pop out their, like dislocate their hips from trying to put their underwear on. You need to make those situations funny. And if you come in and you start freaking out and go, oh my God, uh, your hips, not... Your hips aren't lying. Oh, no, they're not lying. They are lying right now. (laughs) They are lying severely. We need to put them on court. Um, But if you come in and freak out, it just makes that person – this is a daily occurrence and it just makes them feel sort of ostracised for it. So if you come in and you go, oh, for God's sake, what are we doing here? You you can't keep straight, can you? You just need to to hold yourself together. And making as many, like, cruel puns in those moments and then you learn, like, how to take care of people, how to – Something I love about like doing wheelchair basketball is that transition in and out of the vans and the cars. We've got two vans, ones with people, ones with chairs. And the way that we respect people's bodily autonomy was amazing. You learn how everyone needs support, lock it into your brain. You ask before you touch anything, you line things up, you make sure everything's specific to each person because you know that each individual is has self-agency and is the absolute expert of their body and that is respected. You even see that in young children. It ends up being like this sort of pipeline machine that just goes do 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 Everyone's in their chair, everyone's ready to go and we're all disabled. It's what we call the walkers, people that can like, you know, non-wheelies, people that aren't in wheelchairs, um, helping the other ones, supporting each other here and there and it's all done like, it's hard to describe this culture because it comes from all of these situations. And I think the thing that I love the most is the humour because it took a while to adjust to able-bodied and non-disabled humour because it's, 
sort of vanilla. It's very tame. <laughs> <laughs> like, ooh. Yeah, there's definitely an element. I know, especially in Auslan, in deaf language, like... You guys are so mean. You guys are so catty. quite mean because there's no idiomatic speech. There's no way to talk around things. Mm-hmm. So you just kind of get straight to the the point and it's pointy. It can be really, like, quite yeah. nasty. Oh, I've... Just in my own experience. So my mother was a teacher at Mosman Park Primary School. So, oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So I was raised around a lot of deaf people when I was younger. Um, and then it was like going in between there. And oh my God, gossip much? Yeah, it's a very, very small community. And then like the under the hand, under the shirt thing, that took a minute. Yeah. And then like readjusting out of that was like, oh, okay. The context, the hands oh, under okay. the shirt thing is if you wanted to sign somebody secretly, uh, you put your hands inside your shirt and they look down your shirt collar and they can see you signing. Uh, without other people seeing. Yeah, but you know uh, when someone's talking crap about you. <laughs> like, why is it's not very subtle, no. but it at least like cuts the amount of people who can see <laughs> what you're saying. So if I walk sure. into a room and I see you put your hands inside someone else's shirt, I know what's going on. Yeah. Something yeah. looks bad. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. You've done something. Yeah. <laughs> but there's definitely like, like a, a group sort of vibe which yeah like at deaf camp like all the deaf kids are there like any the foundation that runs the deaf camp employs deaf people to run it which Mm -hmm. is excellent like a lot of some of the volunteers are like TAFE students and stuff but we've also got volunteers who are deaf as well and I know I just remember every year the second the parents turn up the vibe just like disappears because there's like all of a sudden these kids are like like switching the way that they behave just completely and it's it's kind of sad because like one of the complaints we sometimes get is like my child is too hyperactive now and it's like wow your child had a great time at deaf camp and you're like complaining yeah oh come on imagine that imagine being that parent wow yeah that Um, poor kid yeah i think it's it's sometimes hard for people outside the community to see it because they yeah. just kind of ruin it by being there sometimes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you can't really show people because I, I used to also coach wheelchair basketball um, for under-18s um, south of the river because there's a lot of opportunities north of the river but not a lot south of the river for sport. And it was always interesting whenever people, we had our come and try days and my um, students, team, they weren't. They weren't a team. <laughs> <laughs> they tried, but we didn't. I gave up teaching them the rules in like the second year. It was not sticking. Um, they would always bring their like cousins or family or friends to come and try wheelchair basketball with them. And you're right. There's like something in the air that changes as soon as it's a shared space. But I felt one of the ways that I could at least tackle that in that environment was going. I was, I was a bit mean, I'll admit. I'm like, oh, the poor Abelbod doesn't know how to ch- turn their chair. Oh. And I would get the other kids to run rings around them because I was sort of like, <laughs> in every environment, they are the odd kid. They are the kid that doesn't know what they're doing. I will give them one hour a week where they can, you know, be the expert in the, on the court, be, you know, big dog champion and just celebrate them as much as physically possible. And that's probably why we didn't. It worked because we didn't get people coming back for the come and try days. Hell yeah. They get to be the bully for once. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's what I'm all about, advocating for young disabled children to bully more. <laughs> no, not, not, not. But it, it does sound a lot like the queer community, you know, in that way of not having the culture, not being born into the culture, having mm. to find our families, our yeah. chosen families, and and feeling like you can 
fully be authentically yourself and suddenly when a cis straight person walks into the room, it's a very different environment or when the parents come into the room and they don't know yeah. about their young person or, you know, being queer or they just don't know this person, maybe not a young person, being queer. Um, yeah, it's a really different energy. Um, so it sounds, like, you know, a lot like that and mm. having yeah. both those communities. That's why I want dream. more people to find the disabled community. It's such a beautiful community that should be celebrated and it makes me so heartbroken when I hear that People like Georgia love you, but you're part of this community and you shouldn't feel guilty. I know that I can say it and that's one thing and feeling it is another thing, but you shouldn't feel guilty for not feeling like you're taking up space. You're not. We need more people who look like you to identify as being disabled because they keep on prioritising people with wheelchairs and they're great and they're fine and they're doing their best. But at the end of the day, the accommodations are for the rest of the community the other 96 percent that are so diverse and have their disability in such a dynamic way it looks in so many different fashions and i you're an individual that should be celebrated and i hope that you find more of the disabled community because it's it's really awesome and it's really cool to be a part of you should join our club it's awesome you're already <laughs> in it you've got the membership card and everything <laughs> it is a very cool club and all the able ones are jealous that they're not in it they are <laughs> You got a gay card, you got a disabled card, <laughs> full set. Original <laughs> mean girls. <laughs> they wear pink all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, no one here is wearing pink so far. Usually I do. Uh-huh. So this is a bit weird. We come from a long line, at least I do, of blind people, um, braille culture, the things that we've done as blind people and fought for um, having a first written language that is unique to us uh, and just knowing all of the stories that have come with it and are, are passed down from person to person of, you know, that blind person that, that d- did that amazing thing. Um, yeah, it's really quite a cool thing and a thing I'm quite proud of. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, for me, I can only speak for myself and people who also use um, wheelchairs as uh, mobility aids. But I think there is a definitely a culture around um, interacting people with consent and care and which I know it should be the norm. Right. But I think um, self-advocating is quite... uh, prevalent in at least my community because you're always watching out for yourself and others who need a little bit of help getting into places that are not thinking about you just infrastructure wise um but then i i hope that the culture is picking up so that um allies and people who care can do that labor for us I don't know if I'm making any sense but yeah so it's um I think it's like you always have to be super vigilant going around and checking and you always have to make sure that you know transport is safe or getting around places is not incredibly incredulous and hard um so I think that is a culture that I've seen in a lot of the workplaces that I participated in or collaborated with and I am proud that it's um, being a bit more in the mainstream but there's a lot of work to be done Um, but yeah I think in in terms of myself like emotionally spiritually I think it's really hard I think I 
I am definitely indebted to uh, a lot of the disabled icons, especially in America, where they, you know, um, came up with the disability international uh, disability awareness day, and just all these bills that get passed, and it trickles down as as knowledge and language around disability that makes it more inclusive for us in Australia as well. But I think personally, I find that because again, we're existing in queer and disabled intersections, sometimes I feel a little bit like, yeah, what is the identity there? And and that's okay. I think as a young person, it's okay to not know. Totally. Yeah. Because you're all on your own journey and, and finding your own sense of identity is, takes time and experimentation. And it's very true of the queer experience as well, you know? Yeah. Um, thank you both for sharing. I think it's, it's just so, I'd never even considered the idea of living with a disability as as part of a culture, it being like an inherited culture, whereas, yeah. you know, you're not born into, necessarily born into a disabled family and a disabled culture. It's something you have to find. I thought it was really beautiful yeah, and very... find and learn mm. and be accustomed with. And usually you don't have anyone to hold your hands. You kind of have to find that yourself, which mm. I think is the same isolation, similar to being queer and finding out. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So how do we feel about what disability and queerness has given us, what unique perspectives, what like abilities or superpowers we feel like we actually have gained. Because there's a little bit of like, your superpower is existing and <laughs> actually Oh my no. God, it is. You're um, so surprised I'm alive right now. <laughs> you made it. Um, you made it out of bed. What a good job. The expectations um, are on the ground. <laughs> Um, so where do you feel like you born. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So where do you feel like you actually would excel? Um, I feel like my biggest, like what disability has given me two, two biggest things is confidence. Um, I present as a very confident person and a lot of people assume me to be a very confident person. I'm not as confident as I seem because all of it is fake because it was forced onto me when I was younger. I was pushed to be confident because I had random strangers coming up to me every other day asking me questions about my body, invasive questions. And I had a mother that said, well, they're just curious. You have to divulge your entire medical information to anyone that you meet. And it took me years to get out of that. But it also, I almost very rarely experience social anxiety. I don't think I've ever really experienced it because talking to a stranger is so easy. Like it's great for like talking to girls if you want to get that introduction line because <laughs> that you can guarantee that they'll probably come up to you and be like, sorry, I hope this isn't like too invasive. Like, this, you Am know, I single? If, yeah. yeah. I'm like, oh my God, you're a femme. I'll put on my femme voice. Yeah. Um, but that like the confidence has been amazing I feel like I'm a really confident public speaker especially working as a busker for five years like being able to go up to crowds of people and perform without it ever being a worry was fantastic but also disability has made me into a bit of a MacGyver very um some people would call it cheating sometimes I would call it creative solutions <laughs> um where I can I've had so many situations where something doesn't figure out or like I couldn't ride this bike so I had to figure out these, you know, what am I wearing? I've got this weird belt and I'll figure out how to strap my prosthetic to this or that or make things in the moment to figure out how life could be accessible because my parents were never allowed me to use my disability ever for a reason or anyone else forever to use it as a reason of me not being able to do it, do something. They were always like, it's your fault for not making it adaptive. My dad was a welder, so... He showed me that anything can be made accessible and I carry that on. I feel like 
as soon as I see a problem, I, my brain starts forming solutions. I'm very good in panic situations, but not good in long-term problem solving. So that's what I think disability has given me that I, when people ask, oh, would you want to walk on two legs? Well, for starters, I have two legs, but like what they mean is two legs that are the same size, but that's very specific. <laughs> I would never, ever want to give up my disability or the community or the culture or the history or the identity. I would never trade it for anything else because if I didn't have my disability, I wouldn't be who I am. And I've spent far too long learning to love who I am. Mm. Mm. And what about your queerness as well? Do you feel like you feel the same way? You're like, I would never trade my queerness. Oh, never. Not yeah. in a million years, especially like being a queer and polyamorous person. I, I feel like there's this sense of relief and validation that there is this love in this universe there and it looks in so many different ways and I can find it in so many different places and avenues because people are so beautiful and being able to be queer and poly and confident as well thank god to my disability and a social person I feel like it all lends hand in hand and I would never trade my queerness and I would never want to have my queerness without my disability or vice versa. They both inform each other and they're both such massive parts of my identity. I mean, I got camp tattooed on my hand, so I can't really go back now. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's in your blood. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you for sharing. Yeah, you seem like such a powerful person. Like I've only just met you and it's it's very... I'm um, a lot. (laughs) I I, I admire you a lot. It's very infectious. It's very cool. Yeah, I think for me, uh, disability especially has stripped away a certain level of rigidity mm-hmm. that I think I would have had otherwise. Because, like, queerness, like, is a lot of the fights have been about, like, you know, born this way or, like, you can't change who you are, you know, through all these other means. But it's like, you, you people do change over time. And, like, remaining open to that questioning... Because, like, disability, my disability Changes over time. Yeah. You become more disabled generally over time mm-hmm. um, Although as you Although dis- disability doesn't exist on a scale. Yeah, true. You, yeah, it, the nature of disability will change over time. And, like, just things will pop up. Doctor's appointments will be ignored. Um, and life will go on. Mm-hmm. And I think applying that to things like queerness, like actually questioning your identity every now and again, like, because it's not something that you figure out all at once when you turn 14 or something. Like, the definitions I had for myself at 14 are, like, massively different to where they are now. And I think that I was able to go on such a varied and interesting journey because of disability. Mm. Um, And, like, I was a little white boy who went to private school. So I looking back, disgusting, right? Looking back, I definitely saw, like, the influences of, like, that really nasty, like, stuff on the internet, like, men's rights activism and, like, Ooh. all that ugly, ugly stuff. I'm scared for boys now. With the, it's yeah, it's different subject. Really, really nasty. Like, you get constantly, it's everywhere. Like, you get fed stuff, like, feminists getting owned and it looks really funny, but you're actually just 12 and... You can't talk good, so when people talk good, it looks good. But in reality, it was definitely the connections I made being, like, a disabled person and then later a queer person that helped me, like, avoid that, like, the plague that it is. Mm. 
which I think the center of it is care. This both of these communities they care because all of us have experienced marginalization and ostracization from the broader sense of communities. We don't want someone to go and listen to. We want people to feel accepted and justified and heard Mm. and I think like disability especially centers that so having that available in both communities just made you know hopping from one to the other like the culture of you don't question people on their experience and you accept things and it's just it's a loving beautiful nature that I think exists in both ones and should be celebrated it's easy to slide in between yeah there's enough like prescriptivism and like you know ranting about year three biology that like mm-hmm. I think it's definitely disability that gives like I've not really met many disabled transphobes no not really like, <laughs> all on the same page because they're all very aware of how random oh. and stupid the human body is yeah yeah <laughs> and um how it's not gonna it goes very much deep way deeper than like mm-hmm. yeah whatever bioessentialist bullcrap has been thrown at them in their disability journey yeah poor things I guess it means that I look at things through both lenses and have to think about things, you know, not just from one lens, not just from one angle. Um, I want to make sure that the space, that spaces are safe for both um, disabled people and um, people who are queer. And I think it's more, especially more um, trying to help the queer community think about the um, disabled community because the disabled community is so small um, that really, um, you know, there there are, I mean, I guess we just do think about it anyway, the other way around, but trying to get more accessibility in queer spaces um, and being able to, to do that is really good. Mm. I think that having accessibility needs and also being in a queer lived queer experience i think requires a lot of um resilience that's kind of a given but also i don't want um young people to have to always be strong and resilient anymore so i hope that we're all just you know able to live harmoniously and <laughs> just enjoy ourselves and not having to be strong or tough it out. Um, but I think that's definitely a unique um, quality that we've acquired. Uh, what else? Um, I think that we can see things, like like Gray said, through different lens and have uh, a unique perspective. I think we're quite inclusive. We don't judge. We don't have judgment for others. And we empathize with different levels of pain, physical and emotional. Um, and I think, yeah, there's a there's an akin to a chosen family, I think. Like we, we're really good at picking up bullcrap and we've got a good radar for that. And we can choose good people to be around and um, so many good community leaders have a lot of intersections of marginalization, and yeah, we're just really cool, guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that lens you were talking about, um, ability to spot like um, you know things that aren't inclusive or people that are being like you know sneakily 
bigoted or sneakily mm. manipulative or ableist or I feel like you definitely have the to be able to see the full picture and I feel like that definitely is something that I see in both of you for sure. Um, and, yeah, just such a – you both have such an elegant way of being – so sassy and like unapologetic, but also being like, you know, I'm I'm on your side, but also I'm gonna, you know, talk about this in a yeah. In don't a get on our way. bad side. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. I think for me, um, just well, the experiences of being queer and disabled really just impact how I see the world, and sometimes I, you know, that can feel really upsetting and can feel really intense, but. I wouldn't change it. Like I see things other people don't. I, you know, bring things to the attention that people don't realise. And I think in the world we live in, you know, where the majority of people that make decisions and that, you know, lead and are in power are, you know, middle-aged, white, straight, able-bodied, rich men, I think it's powerful to be able to show and bring attention and speak up for people and things that don't fit into that. And so I'm really trying to, bring that into the work I do and show that, you know, we need to be thinking of these people and thinking of these things and I just feel like that unique perspective and that the way I experience the world, like, yeah, sure, it can be really intense, but I wouldn't change it because I feel, you know, I feel connected to people that experience difficult things and I know that I can advocate for things to be different and that I wouldn't see these things and realise the impact of these things if I hadn't experienced them and to me that's really or to my values of, you know, justice and equity. And I think it really helps to push things beyond the stereotype of, you know, how we see the world and how, um, you know, things are run and particularly um, looking at reforming, you know, the health and mental health systems, you know, really pushing beyond the bounds of business as usual and what has been to think about people that we don't meet the needs of and who can't access proper and appropriate care and a, a, a big proportion of those people are disabled people, are queer people, are mentally ill people. And so I really hope to speak for those people and understand and push for things to be better for them. And I couldn't do that if I wasn't queer and disabled. I mean, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Let's hope work was okay with me saying that. <laughs> yes. Hell yes. I'd love to know what advice you would have for your younger self or someone that is a young person that's um, you know, sharing an experience like yours. Definitely... The people around young people, like disabled people, are very keen to like speak for you. Mm. Um, they tend to be loud and fast, but I think like every disabled person has a really powerful voice and like mm -hmm. the like lived experience of disability and queerness are like there's no way to speak for that without it. And I think the power of your voice as a young person, I mean, people are constantly going to be shocked. They're going to call you articulate yep. and um, very well-spoken and um, it's going to be a little bit patronising and annoying, but they're just covering their surprise and you should keep talking forever and never let them get a word in. I think I needed to hear that. That was that was really oh that that <laughs> hit my soul. Yeah, wow. Um, I guess I would probably say that like you are valid. How you feel is valid, and your experiences are valid, and you are worthy, despite what anyone else might say to you or might think of you. 
and like you have a place in this world and there is nothing wrong with you and you will find people that will accept you for who you are. You don't have to change who you are. The person that you are is like, has strengths and you know has limits and that is like everyone. That doesn't mean that you are inherently defective. Um, yeah, you are enough and you are valid and things will get easier and you will find your people and that will make life a whole lot easier. Uh, my advice, don't be afraid of your intersectionality. Don't worry about the fact that you might be more than one thing. Don't worry if you have multiple disabilities and or are in the LGBTQIA plus community, um, whatever you are, it's okay to be your whole self, even if it ticks one, two, three, five boxes. That's okay. Go for it. It's you. I think um, what I was would tell my younger self is love isn't going to look like what you think it's going to look like. And that's going to be harsh, but you're going to waste a lot of time looking for love that you've idealised and that's not real and you need to learn what what is it that means the most to you, what what does love look like to you and what's important to you and then finding it within yourself and other people because I feel like there was a lot of love around me that I wasn't aware of and... I wish I could have reached out to other forms of support and other people that were there. Yeah, if I were to look at my 15, 16-year-old self, I'd say that you are enough and you don't have to try to fit into any moulds and that you will find your group of people that will accept you just as you are. You don't have to be entertaining or flashy or doing anything extra to be queer or disabled in the stereotypical sense. Um, yeah, you're enough and you'll find people who find you enough. Oh, you'll find people who find you enough. You're also powerful and like so and so much humour as well and so much like, um, yeah, so unapologetic about who you are and, and what you're about and it's so great to see. Um, all right, I guess we wrap it up. Thank you so much. Sick. Thank, thank you, you for having you. us and organising all of this. <laughs> uh, thank you. It was forced on me. Oh, really, thank you for having me. It's yeah. been really good. Thank you for yeah. being here. Um, just want to thank Youth Pride Network for creating this really, really lovely platform. And, yeah, to the listeners out there, hope you're having a great day. Thank you for joining us here today. It's been an incredible discussion. Um Two people I'm with on this side of the table are awesome and Hannah as well for organising literally everything. (laughs) Yeah, thank you so much for being here. And that's today's episode of Queer And. A huge thank you to our guests for sharing your stories and your wisdom. The Youth Pride Network is a collective of queer advocates working to make Western Australia a better place for queer young people. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, at Youth Pride Network. For resources or information on the guests from today's episode, check out the show notes. For feedback or recommendations for upcoming episodes, hit us up via our website, youthpridenetwork.net. Help us fulfill the gay agenda by giving this episode a share or writing a review. Stay safe and thanks for listening.